Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. Today, we're exploring the decision space of Rajas of the Ganges, a game selected for coverage by our crew, our Patreon supporters who love the show enough to give back and keep us running. So thank you so much to that group for your support of the show. And we're really excited to bring you this episode. I know that there's a lot of people who are uh, part of the, the crew, who are our patrons and support the show that really like this game and are very excited for us to cover it. Some of whom I think have wanted to see this game covered on the show for 70 episodes, 80 episodes. <laughs> um, that's how long these people, some of our people have been waiting. So we're covering it now. And in this episode, we're going to talk about scoring, the novel scoring mechanisms, if it works here, tension, we'll talk about tempo, expectations, uh, and more as we deep dive on the strategy arrow designed by Marcus and Inca Brand. I think we should probably just get right into it as we always do by starting with our ratings and slogans for the game. Brendan, do you want to go first this week? Oh, you're making me go first. Okay. <laughs> Rush <laughs> the Ganges is a complete and total good game. It's a game rife with tension over which direction to run, a feature that enhances its worker placement puzzle and makes for interesting value judgments and keeps the game's evaluations, calculations interesting, mini plays in. It's a fun puzzle to continue to try to solve. But for me, Rajas lacks bombastic moments that could have taken this good game and made it an absolutely excellent one. So at the end of the day, this one for me is a 7.75 out of 10. I don't think I'd ever turn down the game. Like if offered at a game night, like, yeah, I'll play that game. Why not? It's great. But I, it, I'm not going to probably seek it out myself. How about you, Jake? Where are you at with this one? Are you, you right where I am? I'm pretty dang close. And I think like like out of the two of us, you know, like I feel like this is more my style of game. I think so. You know, it's like a very Euro efficiency puzzle type game, which I love. And I like it here a lot too. I won't bury the lead. I think I was going to give it a 7.5. So we're basically Mm. right in line with each other here. What this game sort of reminds me of when I'm playing it is like somebody who is, okay, visualize this. Somebody who's like doing the log race in the water where they're like, you know, spinning the log log and like moving the log forward down the path. And, you know, like, and that's how I feel like on this game, like you just want to like manage the flow. You don't want anything to like get off the rails a bit. Uh, You know, you're keeping the workers coming in at the right time, smooth sailing. You're always having enough dice to work with you know you never want to run like completely out or you know maybe not get too many at one time because that means you're forgoing everything you're just kind of riding this the log you're just managing the flow and i feel like the best played game of this is just like very steady mm-hmm. um and i think that's cool i think that's like a fun challenge it's something i enjoy learning and playing but to your point like it I think I like these games a little bit more. Like my favorite of the efficiency puzzle Euro games are are the ones that like have like the potential for like bigger moments. And there's definitely mm-hmm. potential here to screw up and fall off the log. But I don't know that there's like really potential to like ever make things like super sing yeah. in the way that I would like to be able to achieve in my games. So yeah, it doesn't 7.5 like out of 10. 
gonna turn the log sideways and put like a motor on the back of it right and jet along like it's yeah. just you're gonna roll across the river and that's not to say there aren't like cool combos and big turns because there, yeah. there certainly are but it just feels like a game of just like managing things more than like achieving things is that right definitely i okay. think also the reason why this game is so good for the show is there's so many good interesting decisions here and there's lots of ways in which the decisions can make you feel very clever we're going to get into this but the die the way that the dice work uh is great like the values aren't necessarily strictly like one to six is better there's there's nuance there that pushes in certain directions in in the puzzle that's fun uh that whole management puzzle is cool but maybe we can talk about focus a little bit more as we get through too. But before we do that, I think let's talk about the background. So because I, I think interestingly, you you and I both can I can tell the look in your eyes and how I'm feeling. We're excited to talk about this game. Um, so let's let's set ourselves up so we can get into it. So Rajas of the Ganges is a 2017 game uh, designed by a couple, Inca and Marcus Brand, like I said, and you have no doubt heard of their designs, though you might not know their names because Inca and Marcus Brand are the designers of the Exit series of games. The the games from Cosmos where they took the idea of an escape room and put them in a box uh, that you could have it a contained experience. And there's other people who've designed in that line, but I think they're by far the most prolific of that genre. They've done games like Abandon the Cabin, Dead Men on the Orient Express, The Pharaoh's Tomb, The Secret Lab. So they sort of like, I think deserve more celebration for their contributions there in this creation of what I would say is this really refined, excellent gameplay experience in board games that we wouldn't have without them bringing that fine honed edge to them. Have you played exit games? Jay? Yeah, I, I've played um, the secret lab and I've played the abandoned cabin from this list and maybe one or two more. Um, I always sort of describe them to people as like a fight in the box because that's what happens whenever I try and play one of these with my wife. Like we just instantly start fighting. So <laughs> it's like, it doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't work for us, but like the, the, you know, even for somebody who, does not have a mind for these puzzles and also like wants to hoard all the components so that I can be the one to figure them out. Like the achievement of these small boxes is so clear, you know, like yeah. it's impossible to like, at least for me, I think to take a look at the abandoned cabin exit game and, and not walk away from it thinking like Inca and Marcus brand are on some like genius level stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The puzzles that, so I've played one of them. I've played the Catacombs of Horror. Uh, Maya and I played that. And some of the puzzles in it were just brilliant. Like they were so, they were interesting puzzles to solve. And just the idea of them was so entertainingly fun that I had fun solving the puzzle. So it was sort of like, I'm doing what? We're doing what in this board game? Um, I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think like the escape room in a box type of thing is, is a uh, you know, a whole subsection of the hobby that's sort of yeah. exploded in recent years. But I think that like a lot of that is owed to the exit games. I don't know this is true, but like I I feel like the general perception is that like these are sort of the creme de la creme yes. of the series. Kenner Spiel winning. Yeah. It actually totally blows my mind when I first saw that the designers of Rogers and Ganji was also the designer of these exit games. Because I cool? mean they could not be more different, really. I mean yeah, it's the, the gameplay experience is totally another paradigm. And I think that that's one thing that's really cool about Inca and Marcus Brand is they have other games that sort of fit into this. 
There's a roll and write game that in German is called Nachmal, which was brought to the United States and called Encore. I actually know this game as Nachmal because a lot of uh, within the roll and write fandom community, I think this was a really popular game uh, alongside when there was this sort of explosion in roll and writes with like Welcome to and that sort of thing. This was one that always got mentioned of like Nachmal is really good. So they designed that. And then they also have an old, uh, an older worker placement game called Village that came out in two, 2011 that I don't hear talked about quite as much anymore. But when I first really got into board games, lots of people were talking about Village as a compelling worker placement game that you could put on the table with almost anyone and introduce them to this mechanism. I think it was like on the top 100 like games on board game geek for for quite a while i think i remember you know seeing that and exploring that when i was coming into the hobby around 2015 yeah. um it's always so cool too just as an aside when like designers have this kind of like scope of their work to be able to you know create games in such diverse genres you know it, it's yeah. it's because it, it just feels like such a different craft Totally. It's very impressive. And it's cool that it's a husband-wife duo. Uh, actually, the second couple that we've covered who are designers, the other being uh, Lewin and Min, Ellen and Min, who designed uh, Arnak, Lost Ruins of Arnak. But that's an aside. And I think we need another aside here, Jake, because we got a review. Yes. And periodically, we like to read reviews out on the show as a way of saying thank you for leaving a review. I know podcasters like to talk to you about reviews, and there's good reason for that. It actually really helps the show. If you listen to it, enjoy it, and you leave a review wherever you listen, it helps discoverability so that if other people can find the show as well. Uh, so thank you to Frankie G33, who left this review titled High Quality Board Game Podcast. And I'll let Jake be the one who brings Frankie's excellent feedback uh, to the air. All right. Thanks, Brendan. And uh, thank you, listener, for allowing this little interlude before we get right back into this episode where we'll give you the rules overview and then the discussion on the other side. So Frankie G33 says, this podcast really scratches an itch. High quality discussion around board games and the decision spaces they provide. The hosts are obviously very passionate about board games and games in general. They have differing tastes, which helps push the conversation forward. Also, I like when the hosts talk about all things games as opposed to just board games. Aha, a fan of our kickball episode. I was thinking snap. Concepts and theory around play apply to all types of mediums, and it's insightful to see those connections made. I think Frankie G clearly wants us to bring back some of our sports analogies, so let's try and do that in this discussion but in all seriousness thank you so much frankie g33 we have some other reviews in the hopper so we'll try and read out about one per episode for at least the next two more episodes until we run out um but hopefully longer than that if some other people choose to give us a review as well so thank you in advance glad to know if y'all have an itch we're here to scratch it <laughs> all right well let's go into brendan's previously or separately recorded rules overview and meet you back on the other side for our deep dive discussion of rajas of the ganges all 
Rajas of the Ganges is a dice-driven worker placement game with a novel victory condition. The game has two scoring tracks, the fame track and the money track, which run parallel to each other in opposite directions around the game board. Players' fame markers move in a clockwise direction, and their money markers move counterclockwise along these tracks. The game ends once a player's fame and money markers converge or pass each other on their tracks, at which point any player who's not yet taken a turn that round takes another turn, so there's an equal number of turns in the game, and then the player whose markers have passed each other and moved the furthest apart is crowned the victor. In pursuing this objective, players manage a pool of dice, which are used to take actions alongside their workers each round. Dice are six-sided and come in four colors, so careful management of dice resources is a key part of Rajas the Ganges' decision space. Not all worker placement spots are created equal, and players will compete for powerful locations in the palace, while balancing out other demands, including moving up a river of action spaces in the center of the board, and building out a personal province player board with tiles, which increases the effectiveness of market actions and allows them to build buildings, which score them victory points and move them up the fame track. They have other demands, like increasing the potential value of buildings, collecting the right type of goods on province tiles that they add so that they can make those market actions more powerful. But while players' attention and agency is split between all these goals and worker placement areas, the game tosses another ball at the players for them to juggle. By reaching certain key spots on the river, the fame track, and or the money track, players gain access to additional workers, giving them additional actions each round beyond the starting number of three actions per player per round. There's a lot of minutia that's beyond the scope of this overview, but the gameplay loop is simple, that core loop. It's place workers to take actions, pay for those actions with dice, and try to be the first player to have your fame and money markers intersect on their tracks, while making sure that if others are in reach of this goal, that your markers pass the furthest beyond each other. The player who accomplished this is crowned the victor in Rajas of the Ganges. And we are back. Brendan, thanks as always for taking the time to put together those skillfully crafted rules overviews. I know a lot of people like them and I love to edit them. Actually, I don't, but it's fine. <laughs> I hope you don't have to edit them too much. No, all, you know what? All I do, this is just a little bit behind the curtain, is I just uh, run a really quick filter over it and I just like try and compress it as much as possible by like cutting out like spaces between words and breaths just because i think like let's just sh shrink it down so that's like the only part of the episode where i really do that on yeah uh, so some people might think you just like literally can speak for minutes without breathing not the case that's the magic of editing well thank you for doing that jake and i'm excited okay first we got to do what we always do we got to characterize the decision space and i think that interestingly the number one question of a worker placement game out of the bat do i get more workers yes <laughs> kind of some a few so you start with three and you can get up to two more or up to three more in the and there's a, a variant that people really like called the nah oh shoot help me jake i don't know what it's called but this is the one where you can like upgrade your kind of bonuses yep. on the side of the board and you can get up to three building out so just two yeah, yeah. the nerve Navarantas, 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 Navarantas. That's what it is. The Navarantas variant. So we'll talk about that a little bit too. But basically you start with some workers and you get more. But does that mean that it's a waxing decision space, Jake? Um, it's a good question. I think, I think yes, 
for the most part it is, but I wanted to pose a question to you, which is like, what game have we covered that has like the most similar Hmm. decision space to this one? And to me, it's like pretty clear and it's, but you go ahead before I tell you the right answer. It's pretty clear. Yeah. Interesting. Oh no. Okay. So I'm going to give you a take. I have a game in my head, but it's not the game that you're talking about because the game in my head is Castles of Burgundy, but I think that I'm being tricked into that yeah, answer that's by right. this being a punctuated game because of the rounds and by there being dice. But I think it's not that. So what yeah, is the real it's answer? It's close. It has a lot of similar mechanisms, but the uh, the answer is Bonfire for me. Interesting. Which is okay. that like okay. I think it has a very similar like game flow where you're trying to like maximize what mm. you're doing in each round, but the rounds there's there's more like variables into a round than just how many workers you have. Yeah. Because in Rajas of the Ganges, the dice is this like such an important variable too, where it's like, if you don't have dice to take action, like you basically might as well be passing. Yep. Um, which makes it feel like I could have more workers than you, but if I don't have like enough dice, I don't have the dice like economy to do stuff with them. Then it doesn't really feel like I'm able to do more i want to emphasize this point too because i know we're going to come back to it which is that the turns where you use your actions to take more dice feel like you're passing like you're not making any meaningful progress it doesn't feel like exactly Um, yeah totally i think another thing bonfire is great i think you're definitely right interestingly the way that actions work in bonfire like you don't have workers in bonfire but it kind of feels similarly Mm -hmm. to what's going on here um and I think that because you have those the tiles that you're managing, just like kind of how you're managing your your dice. But also one cool thing about both of those games, both of the games that's similar is you can end up very quickly in a position where different actions on the board are very differently valued depending on the player, right? In Rajas of the Ganges, you can end up improving certain buildings so that when you build those buildings, you get way more fame than other people. Or maybe you have certain goods that you've collected that other people haven't that make the market locations for those specific goods way better for you. So quickly, you know, everyone starts out exactly the same and then very quickly that's not the case anymore. And I think that that's kind of similar to Bonfire. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like both these games have definite waxing elements, but also are Feel very dynamic, dynamic yeah. because like, even though yes, we're sort of growing in ability to do stuff over the course of the game, like on any given turn, you're you might be doing very little or you're doing a whole lot. Yeah, I think also, you know, we've kind of danced around this question of like, well, how do we really categorize these games? Where are we drawing the line? I want to propose in this episode, we just draw the line at what is the soul of this game, right? Like when you think about this game, how does it what does it really feel like? And this does not really feel like a waxing game. Yeah, you so- don't have that momentum. I was going to say on three, we should both say what it was, but I was going to say dynamic. Dynamic, exactly. Okay, dynamic yeah. is the soul of this of game. The game. I love that. That's Perfect. such a clean way of kind of getting to the, like, just like, what do you feel like it is? Because that's yeah. really, I think. What matters. What matters rather than like, okay, well, it has like objectively the decision space is technically waxing, but like subjectively, you're not really going to be doing a lot of things on turns like four through six of the game. So therefore, like it's waning in that way it's like okay but what does that like mean to play it and i think yeah what what it means to play this game is that like the decision space is dynamic you might have a lot of interesting options on your turn or you may have very little yep and then 
I'm really curious to hear what you think about this, Jake, because it could be that I'm not as strong of a Rajas of the Ganges player as I wish I was. So <laughs> my answer here could be clouded by just lack of skill. But to me, Rajas of the Ganges feels like a fairly fuzzy decision space for a game with very low randomness. Uh, typically, fuzzier decision spaces come from uncertainty based on randomness within a game, right? Like you don't know what the outcome of some future input will be. So it feels fuzzy because you can't evaluate it. Rogers is pretty, it lacks randomness for the most part. There's very little, there's a little dice re-rolling uh, and you have the initial input of dice randomness. Whenever you get a new die, you roll it. For the most part, it's pretty known. But to me, the game still feels somewhat fuzzy, it, depending on what my opponents are going to do, depending on what tiles might come out to build in the province board, what ends up being good uh, and the path I should have pursued feels fairly, I don't know what that's going to be at the outset of any given game. Yeah, I do disagree a little bit. I think for me, I usually, and I, I think like what I think about when I think about the clarity of the decision space is like after I take my turn, Yeah, like do I feel like I've made you know a good decision? Right. You know, yeah. and I think like this game, mm. like you, I think you can get there relatively easily and, you know, picking the, there's so many worker placement spots on the game, right? Like, so there's, you know, potentially what, like 15 or 16 different spots you could go on a turn because there's yeah. one for each die face. So that's six right there. There's the river seven. There's like five markets or something. Yep. Maybe four markets the dice and the area. builder space and all the dice areas. Like, so there's like a, a lot of uh, action spaces you can be considering. But I think because of the fact that like some of them accrue in cost as people like take those spaces, you know, like mm -hmm. pretty earlier in the round, it's like, okay, I really want to like get to these spaces before other people. Um, I didn't cover that in the rules overview. So let's talk about that a little bit. So one of the areas that this can happen is when you're going to add tiles to your province area, you go to the same build action, but every time a player does that, it gets more expensive and the river is the same way. So the first person to take those actions or the, the earlier you take those actions, the cheaper they are, but sometimes you'll take a build action three times in one round. So you might be the same person sort of paying an increasing cost. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And, and I think to your point too, like things separate so quickly in terms of like what is more valuable to me as other people mm -hmm. um the the fact that like the dive the palace actions which are these actions like you can you have to have a certain die face to go there some of those seem just like really good where you sort of are just like okay i can take that so i just like snap take that action like whenever i can yeah um i just think there's like enough stuff going on here that like you can kind of like work through a heuristic to come to a pretty good answer that like what you're doing is like mostly right or at least valuable to you if not right compared to something like the like bonfire which for me is like much less clear in a lot mm. of cases where i could just like look at the board for 10 minutes and then i'm just still like looking at it it's like i really have no clue what i should be doing here like Raj of the Ganges doesn't feel like that to me. Yeah. Like, I feel like I can at least get to like something profitable yeah. um, after applying a little bit of thought. So, I mean, I'd put it somewhere 
if, if it's just like a slider from like perfectly clear to yeah. perfectly cloudy, you know, maybe I'm putting it like 55%, like yeah. squarely in between Bonfire and Castles of Burgundy to name two other sort of similar games in this like Euro efficiency puzzle space. Bonfire being not clear at all and Castles of Burgundy being almost completely clear. Or, or yeah, it? or much clearer. Much clearer. Okay, great. I think that's so interesting because I also, when I came at that question, I was coming at it from like a whole game arc strategic perspective and you brought us to the turn by turn tactical perspective and i completely agree with you on a on a turn by turn basis it does feel really clear but then you'll have the turns jake where you get you'll take an action these actions are our favorites i think you take an action that gives you some small benefit and then you get two dice and you can take dice of any color taking the dancer action that gives me a yield token and two dice amazing i want to do it every time i can so good that's really clear Boom, I'm slamming my worker down. What dice colors to take? A little bit less clear. Like I might think about that a little bit longer. I have to look around the table. But to your point, I feel like you can usually get to the right answer for the most part. Yeah, it's interesting because it's like, I think like what dice color to pick also is like, it's not very clear to me either, but also it doesn't feel that important. Mm, Interesting. You know, like, because a lot of the, the only thing that requires... Color. different color is the where you're like building out your board what's that called in the your game? province board your province board you're building out your province board so those tiles require specific colors um but nothing else really does so yeah. like it's for me i think like the re the reason that doesn't feel like it clouds the decision space as much as it otherwise should is because i usually feel pretty content just like looking at it pretty quickly and being like okay like i could use this tile or this tile So I'll just like double up on one of those colors and hope I get like a high value. Yeah. The other thing that does just so people don't yell at us is the bottom of the palace, the color dice swapping. You can give one blue to get two of X color. You can give one of X color to get two of Y color. Yeah. Those are specific. But Jake is like, avoid those spots. But with the plague, I (laughs) don't consider those. Yeah. Uh, That's pretty much where I'm at. I'm sure like. Yeah, because I just think that would be such like an inefficient line to take in like most cases, right? Where it's like, I'm going to take this action to get a dice that I don't really need right away so that I can like basically take the pass action to gain like a single extra die. Yeah, you net one die. Yeah, you give one up to get two, so you net one die. And to like have that as like a two turn play just seems like. Like you're going to be falling behind the race if that's sort of what you're doing. If you do it too much. Yep. But one thing you said that really is interesting to me about the decision space is like you feel like the overall strategy isn't very clear. And I think like I just don't try and strategize at all in this game. I'm just trying. I, I feel like this game is like, you know, a game that really just like rewards you. Like, it feels like a very, very tactical experience to me. Like, I think we're, like, for me, this is far, far on the tactical side of things. Just like uh, Castles of Burgundy. Um, Because, like, there are sort of things that will reward you down the line. If you can think ahead, like, I'm thinking about the river spaces, right? Where some of the river spaces can give you bonus for having the right type of markets. Like, if you have all the same type of market, you can, like, hit a river space um, that can, like, trigger all of those at once and give you a huge boon in uh, points. I guess that would be money uh, to go up the money track. 
also, as you mentioned, like you can upgrade your buildings. But like when I'm doing that, I'm sort of just like kind of looking at the board and seeing like, okay, what is there a lot of out here? Like what building types and usually going for that one. And I just feel like for me, as I play the game, like whatever I'm trying to do late game is just sort of like naturally following from just trying to like take efficient plays up to that point. Yep. And if there's an arbitrary choice between increasing two buildings, like there's an equal amount of buildings on the board, you have equal dice to pursue them. It's easy enough to look and sort of say, oh, this building type is wanted by more people because they've advanced their marker up it. So I'll go for the other one because it there will be slightly less competition for those. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I feel like we've done a good job covering that. But what if we talk about the hook? So I want to okay. get your impression of the hook. Okay. These two pieces... The game, the hook that I'm talking about is, of course, the, the the victory condition. Your pieces have to cross on the fame and the money tracks. And who's ever cross further, usually it's whoever's cross. But it, it ultimately, the, the rule is written, whoever's cross further, because you could have two people who cross in the same turn, wins. Amazing? Novel? <laughs> kind of confusing and not actually like that interesting? It's definitely uh, not confusing. It's I, not I mean, confusing. I, I think it's very clear. I think it is novel, but I don't think it actually like changes anything, does it? Like if we were just advancing around a board, a track around the edge of the board and getting money advanced to, you know, one space and getting a whatever, a prestige symbol advanced to three spaces, mm. would that, or two, whatever the, translation is there like i guess yes. would that change anything yes if only because you have to catch up with the other spot right like you you have to pursue both to some extent because of the way that the value is created through certain things okay like, like, the, like the opportunity costs of right like you i don't think you could win this game only doing fame getting all the way around the board to to the start of like three or four spaces of money Right. Like there's this you're trying to find a sweet spot and it leaves room for specializing, I, but you do yeah. have to do both. So I guess it accomplishes. I think that. you're right. But I think the only reason that is, is because there's like incentives on each track. Like if yeah. you advance up the money track, you, you know, whenever you pass, like you get 10 money. And now you can like move your boat one space on the river for free yeah. or like, you know, some other type. You get a uh, is it like karma that you can use to manipulate yes, karma. the so yep. you could maybe get a karma by advancing up the prestige track. Sure. Um, and I think like only because of like those, like trying to capture those incentives mm -hmm. um, on both tracks, especially early on, like you definitely want to be doing both, but otherwise it's kind of, the same. I don't know. Like to me, ultimately does this like make the game sing? Like would I want this to be like explored in more games versus just like, normal scoring track around the board i don't know <laughs> you know i don't think it does a ton for me at the end I of the day it's like, my impression of this this mechanism is like oh that's really neat like if i had yeah. designed it and i was going to show a publisher i'd be like look how neat this mechanism is and then they would it's really neat yeah <laughs> everyone agrees it it's now. neat yeah it's yeah. really neat it's not the sort of thing that elevates the game but it is cool and when you think of rogers of the ganges you think of this mechanism so it's a boon for the game in its ability to be an interesting game that people want to talk about, I think more so than it's a boon for the game mechanically. Yeah. It's cool, but yeah. You know what I like it most for actually is the fact that it's like adds a super intuitive and Heuristic. fair 
tiebreaker rule. Oh, okay. Uh, and that doesn't come up much in this game, in my experience, where yeah. people are crossing at the exact same time. But in the uh, roll and write iteration of this game, yeah. the dice charmers, which I've played a ton on Yukata and actually really love as a as a super com- combo-rific roll and write game. That's kind of the perfect roll as an aside, like the perfect thing for a digital implementation because you like mm. combo off like crazy. And I would never trust people around the table that they were doing things right. But on um, you know, with when that taken care of for you, it's fantastic. And in that game, it feels like everybody's always crossing at the same time pretty much yeah. it's like smooths out a lot of the sort of like efficiency throughout and then it's just a matter of like who's done more and i think it works fantastic there and here i think nice like definitely a plus for me but not like holy cow I'm, can you believe the two tracks that's just like blowing my mind yeah one thing that i guess is cool about it is just physically designing it uh one track has to be on the inside and one track has to be on the outside so they can't have the same number of spaces, right? It creates this literal physical problem where the track on the outside has to have probably more spaces than the track on the inside. Just if they're, I mean, you could adjust for size some, which is what they do here, but it creates this hierarchy where the fame is worth roughly, uh, every two money is worth roughly one fame. Is so it exactly probably? Is It's probably exactly. Yeah, so uh-huh. you're, you're kind of, you have that heuristic in your head. Mm-hmm. which I think that's kind of fun. That's sort of, it, it makes the puzzle slightly more complex, maybe not ultimately more deep, but it's sort of fun kind of trying to puzzle out those comparisons game to game. I think actually that her- super clear heuristic might in some ways make the game easier. I thought you were going to so? say it makes it easier because like, you know, what if, if I'm playing, I don't know, uh, Voyages of Marco Polo, like it's not always super clear to me, like, what is a gold mm. worth to me at this moment, you know? Mm. And it's, it's, I mean, that's totally different because that's like yeah. a resource or whatever. But here it's like, it's kind of nice being able to know, like, okay, I can get exactly this many victory points by taking this option on my turn, whereas like this other one gives me this many victory yeah. points. Yeah. Although I guess, I guess still less clear than just having one victory point. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't right. know. I, I feel like, too, this factors into the fuzziness for me where I think it's slightly fuzzier strategically just because you feel restricted in some ways of my ability to pursue fame or my ability pr- to pursue money in density, right? Which is what I would really want. It's like push really far. Uh, it's sometimes cloudy. So where, what am I trying to say? If everyone takes the like the market actions, I, I need to hope that I have a way that I can get a lot of fame this round from mm-hmm. the position that I'm at. And that might not always be the case if I'm not moved up the building tracks. So yeah. I like that it adds that amount of complexity where I have to sort of see, are people pushing more towards a market strategy with money or more towards a building strategy for fame? And what does that mean about what I should be doing? I think I, think, I am thinking about that some. I think the more we talk about this mechanism, the more I like see like the value of it. And I, that's credit to the designers for really leveraging it in the, the design. Because yeah. I think some people could say sort of like a weakness of the game for some mm. players is the fact that there's, in my mind, very little strategy going on and mm. more you know tactical efficiency turn to turn. Yeah. But I think to the extent that there is strategy, a lot of it is like, am I going more fame or am I, mm-hmm. which I think I've been calling prestige, but it's fame. Am I going more fame or am I going more money this game? Yeah. And like having the two distinct tracks kind of really allow you to sort of like see that distinction. Like, oh yeah, I'm like a money guy. I'm sure. like doing the markets and I'm like way past people on the money track. You know, um, I think it does sort of like 
bring out those strategic elements a little bit more than if it was just a single track. And the things that sort of lean into that being things like putting workers on the tracks that you really want to get mm-hmm. early on in the game. So it forces you sort of to say, okay, early on, are you going to push more in this direction or more in this direction? Were you going to try to run up the river and burn valuable river spaces? You know, sort of, I, I do like that it presents those questions to you and then lets you find the right answer in any given play. I think that that's a strong part of this game of sort of in this play, am I going to do it differently or, or how am I going to approach this early problem that the game presents? Well, should we uh, talk about the province boards and that portion of the game? Yeah, let's do it. Cause that's sort of like the opposite of the, uh markets and the money stuff is that's generally where you're getting all your fame points or the majority of it so what do you think like the most interesting decisions are here okay so the most interesting decisions i feel like in the base game basically you have these payouts around the the edge of the board that are set but in the navaranthus variant Uh, you actually get to augment those spaces. And I think some of the most interesting decisions in the entire game come from when you can augment those spaces because it's really fun sort of trying to figure out how to puzzle what rewards you're getting and win. And generally, I I feel like I want to get dice. So you get to augment what those, oh, what are they called, Jake? The yield tokens. You get to augment those yield tokens. And I think that that puzzling is fun. But in general, I will say when I was learning this game, I felt that the province boards would play a larger role in the core experience of the game than they did. I felt I'd get I'd fill in more of my board than I've ended up filling up. Uh, you sort of just, am I going to fill up the left side or the right side? Yeah. Uh, and then that's it. And, or maybe am I just going to fill up the top side? And what does that look like? And I think that one of the reasons I sort of want this game part of the game to be more emphasized and and larger because it takes up more physical space on the table and ultimately a lot of the tiling decisions right you're building these routes back to your starting position so some tiles are uh, connected on all four sides some are just two sides and some are three sides I, i don't know that that spatial puzzle ends up being all that interesting where sort of if i basically lock myself off of a certain decision right i'll, I'll put this one that goes three ways in the top left corner. So I, I, I'm not going to build down from this tile. I just go do something else. And I, I haven't really mm-hmm. missed out that much from doing it that way. Sometimes with the yield tiles, that's not necessarily true. But I, I'll say that I thought that this puzzle would have been would be larger. So when I talked about expectations at the top of the show and that we'd be talking about that, I think this is one area where my expectations didn't necessarily match with what the gameplay experience ends up being with the puzzle here. What do you think? How are the yeah. decisions punching? It's a good question. I think I think I do tend to agree with you. I'm not sure that I want it to be like much more consequential, just because like they're all, the game is trying to like be a medium game. Yeah, yeah, right. And it succeeds with that. Where I feel like if like it probably to make the decisions here more challenging or richer would like require just like more rules complexity yeah. that I don't know that the game would be served ultimately to have. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do agree. I think like. The heuristics that you can just sort of create within any given game about like which tiles you want are like so can be like very straightforward, right? Like, yeah. am I like going for a building type? Like, okay, well, then I'm just like gonna like prioritize those, or am I like going for like a certain type of market? Okay, like that, that makes sense. I just think like anytime I'm taking this action, 
based on the limited dice I have in front of me, it's like very clear which one I want. And then like when I go to place that on my board, it's like relatively straightforward what to do. So I, you know, I kind of agree like the decisions here don't like once you actually like get to taking that action are not rich, you know, maybe the more interesting decision is like when you're placing your worker, like when am I doing this? And there is some like interesting sort of a, we talked about this in the palaces of Carrara episode where I think there's like this interesting thing I really like where it's sort of like resource gating where Mm. it's like, if there's like a tile I really want. um, So say it's like costs a six, six value and it's a green tile. Like, and I have the six green die and nobody else has that. Like there's no reason for me to take that action right away. You know, even if somebody else really wants that tile, like I can wait until somebody else gets the resources necessary um, and then take it so that they can't have it at that point. So I think like that sort of like form of player interaction is is pretty fun. Um, And and that's definitely present here as well. Like I I I feel like that's something that's like one of the bigger points of player interaction. Actually, for me, when I play this game, I feel like when I'm looking around the table at what resources other people have and what dice, it's generally because I'm like, okay, does anybody else want this tile? that yeah. I want can anybody else buy it and if the answer to that is no then usually I'm not going to take that action yeah that's great that's a really great point Jake I feel like the way the decisions play out within the tiling itself it almost feels like a tracker in a way but it's a way more interesting space to explore than just a straight line where you have these payoffs for building things so that's a real benefit to the game where you just add this little little piece of puzzle to it I'll also say my criticism about bombastic turns and wishing there were more when they do come, they come here, right? You get the perfect tile where you've maxed out two building types. It has two buildings on it. You get paid out eight victory points, and then you get some great yield tokens from doing it in some corner spot that was really good. So I do like this part of the game yeah. quite a bit. And yeah. even if like the decisions getting there are relatively straightforward, right? You start building on the right side. Like ultimately, you're trying to get to like the most valuable yield tile. Yeah. Um, it still feels like, yes, like I've executed my plan, you know, when it comes yeah. together. Um, yeah, it gives you the... Like you, because you, you, you know, you did like, even if it's straightforward, like you're still calling your shot. You're like, yeah. I'm going to go for that. And then when you yeah. get it, you're like, Haha, I told y'all I was going to do that. And everybody's like, cool, we don't care. We're doing our own puzzle. <laughs> and you get the satisfaction of filling in a hole sometimes, which is always fun. Yeah. yeah. It, uh, Jake, how often when you are making those purchasing decisions that are maybe the most interesting part of the province board puzzle... How often, so you can overpay in this game. You could use a, uh, if a die costs 10, you could use a six and a four, or you could use two sixes and you could pay two die, two sixes to buy that. How often, Jake, would you say that, do you overpay? How much do you consider that in your evaluation? And then also, how much do you try to avoid using mini dice? Like how expensive is the cost of using yeah. Too many dice to you. Yeah, I, th- I think like I don't care at all about overpaying for a single die tile. You know, like I think a lot of times like one die is one die, right? Like mm. if, if it only costs four to place a tile and I only have a six available to me. Yeah. That's not something I really care Sweat. a lot about in most cases. But I definitely think like I, I have a I find it hard to justify the cost of the two die tiles mm. in um in the majority of cases like maybe very late game like you're going for like that final rush um but it just seems like paying two dice for a single tile unless you just have somehow a huge influx of too many dice is 
yes, it's giving you a temporary boost now, but then you're going to have to pass at some point later on to make up for that. And I don't know if that's worth it, but that might just, again, like who knows if I'm playing this game the best, like I'm sure there's, there's like, as I'm talking about, it's like, well, I guess there could be value if it means I'm like, you know, hitting uh, extra worker space this round that I like otherwise couldn't get to. Like, I think there's definitely like times for it, but I think maybe this just comes down to like my personal philosophy and my play style of like, walking that log slowly across the pool you know and not trying to like do anything too rash uh, which seems to work out well for me that like it's hard to justify two dice for a single tile yeah and i really like those expensive tiles because i like this part of the game so i've i typically over invest i think and then i end up spending more turns trying to buy myself back into having enough dice and i don't know that i always justify it so maybe that's why i was feeling like strategically the game doesn't it feels really fuzzy and you're feeling like oh it's just clear just don't engage with those because just they feel expensive <laughs> yeah um that's really interesting I, well and also like i think like you have to make sure that it's worth it to you because the difference between a tile that costs 10 and a tile that costs four or six yeah is a lot of times like not that great you know like yep. it might just have the same exact pass but two buildings on it instead of one which could literally be worth like four points instead of like three points to you you know and that's not worth an extra dice at all or you've got like a couple markets but how many times you're really going to activate that at this point in the game and that's a really good point that the markets when you get them early on there's no value in them there's a tiny bit of value but there's so much more you immediately score it so you immediately score it but the real value is in your ability to score those over and over again right so they give you momentum towards the decisions you're going to have to make in the future and then you you narrow your decision space because if you've invested there, you have to make sure your investment pays off a little bit, probably to make mm-hmm. that opportunity count. So yeah, it's yeah. interesting. You're sunk costing it up, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what do you, okay. We made one bad decision. <laughs> better just like keep, better keep making them. <laughs> yeah. That's all good games. All good games. I'll dig um, myself out of this hole right away. What if we, Jake, so there's like a few, uh, the, we kind of talked about the province board. Now there's the palace, the river, and the market and the building spaces, which I, what if we talk about the palace and the river and give them some space to breathe? Okay. So let's go for the palace. Let's just go one by one through the actions and give our thoughts. Okay. What do you think? So the the number one allows you to get two fame points and become a starting player next round. I've never taken this action. Never? <laughs> no. See, that's because you don't overinvest in the tiles <laughs> that make you need to do specific things to have them pay off. <laughs> I'll take this sometimes. I think it's especially good obviously at higher player counts yeah i think most of my plays have been two or three i'm actually not sure i've played it with more than three people where i could see this having more value yep with four people playing if ever if it's late game and more people are going for market actions and that sort of thing going earlier can really matter if you have a specific spot that you need so i have taken it it's also nice to have something to do with your ones Mm -hmm. since it's a one value okay this next one i love this spot it's like my favorite spot in the game is the dancer it's two value and you get two new dice. So you do a, a trade one for two, uh, but you could be trading for better value because you're putting a two in and you could get pro- probabilistically you're going to get higher dice back than you than you gave. And then you also get a yield token or in the mod, uh, the variant, you get a new yield token on your board. But like basically this says, give me a two and I'll give you two new dice and probably four gold or some other really great benefit. Yeah. Four silver or four whatever silver. it is. Not yeah. that. Yeah. Money. Um, yeah, this one seems super strong and it's also just speaks to I think like 
how even the actions are across the whole game. Yeah. It's kind of like a emotep situation where it's like, mm. you know, good players are going to be separating themselves by getting like slightly more value over like on every single turn than like an unskilled player, even though like the amount you can do better on a single turn is so tiny because we're yeah. like, this is like, feels like the best action in the game where yeah. it's uh, the act where you're spending, you're exchanging one dice for two dice and getting a small benefit. Whereas like the action that's like exchanging one dice for two dice without the small benefit is like trash. Never want to do it. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah, totally. What about this next one? That is the, it's, so this one's called the Yogi. You give a three and you get one die back. So you get paid back for your dice. So it's a dice conversion. And then you get two karma. And karma is a resource that allows you to turn a die. So you can turn a, to the opposite side. So a six becomes a one, a five becomes a two, a three becomes a four. Yeah, I think it's strong, it's right? Yeah. Um, karma is important. It's situational. But like I think if you're ever like at a place on the karma track, like three is the highest you can have, right? Yeah, you can't go above. It's three. like zero yeah. to three. So anytime yep. you're at one or zero karma, this is incredibly strong. But you probably yeah. don't want to take it if you're only getting a single karma. Let's take a uh, talk about like- karma interlude <laughs> because <laughs> okay. we we really like these mechanisms in games, Jake. These like agency increasing mechanisms that basically let you modify an outcome, right? So in Castles mm-hmm. of Burgundy, you have workers that let you change the value of dice. In Cascade, you can pay a pine cone to draft uh, a pair that you couldn't normally draft. And this game's version of that is karma. What do you think of this karma system where you can flip the value of a die? Yeah, it's cool. Um, I think it gives you like a little bit more agency in the roll and write version of the game. Interestingly, I mm. think when you use karma, you're just re-rolling a die. So I was kind of like, oh, wait, that's weird that this doesn't work the same way. So you're just flipping it. Yeah. And um, you can... There, there's like an action that allows you to re-roll multiple dice, but that takes an action, right? Yeah, yep. But that's so it's interesting too that this that the only agency is by flipping a die, right? A yeah. one can become a six, but there's no way to like increase by one or decrease by one, which you yeah. always see in games. So it's just a, in, it, you know, is that good or bad? I'm not sure. It just is, but it is interesting that like the designers have like made this choice to to limit you in this way, and you couldn't like spend two karma to make it anything you want or something like that yeah. to give even more agency. I think, right, exactly. I, I, We really like these systems and games because they increase player agency and make the decision space deeper on average. But on the spectrum of these types of uh, mechanisms, I think that this leans towards a little bit less agency. So it's interesting to see how it's implemented. With that said, I'm always, you, I always want to have some karma, but I don't ever feel like I need it over another action, right? If I'm at zero, I need it. If I'm at one, I'm thinking harder of if I'm using it. But it's not... I mean, you don't want to end the game with three karma. You've wasted your... Isn't there like a river space towards the end that gives you like two fame for every karma you have? Oh, let me... There's something like that, and it feels very strong. Let me double check that. Yeah, probably. Oh yeah, that's the very last space on the board. That so one is really good. You can that's why it's here. like that's 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 like my pushback about ending yeah. the game with karma. If that's your last action, then that's congratulations. Really like you, yeah. then that's fine. Um, but I guess like so, I don't know. Maybe that is their way to be like, oh, it's actually good to have this resource. When you yeah. said that you want to do like an interlude about karma, I thought you were gonna like talk about like the theme and like, is it okay that we're just like German designers like just like using like sort of like Hindu terminology yeah, yeah. and and i don't know like 
it just feels a little silly. I don't want to mm. like do like a whole long like interlude about the theme in this game, which I. But uh, it, it I, do, I, I just want to say like it does give me like a little bit of like I don't know you know when you look at like the characterization of the people like it just feels like a little a little cartoony and a little bit like why are you know i don't know karma as a resource it just feels a little weird to me um so i just think you know you'll probably hear this and be like oh, okay like that i feel like that is a little bit problematic for me or not you know yeah yeah the collie statue holding your dice it's cool but it's cool and everything looks good but yeah it's enough where like i will say as someone who doesn't come from the cultural context in which the game is portraying um so i have a harder time judging how respectfully the portrayal is done it, it's enough that it a little bit when i first saw the game like raise a red flag but i don't think it's done in a way where it's sort of like could this be something that maybe wasn't portrayed as respectfully as it should but then at the same time playing the game it definitely doesn't i don't feel like i, I need in my brain it doesn't trigger a need to follow that red flag further like i would in some games so i guess it's like yeah we're kind of like in for me in my personal perspective in sort of the middle ground i'm not an expert here Obviously, that's just my personal perspective. I don't know. I get what you're saying. You could also say, like, Agricola is cartoony, right? Like, the portrayal of subsistence farming and, like, some of the actions there. But Right. But that brings us to, like, a larger yep. conversation yeah, about, yeah. like, people depicting, like, their own culture Cultures. or, like, choosing yep. a different culture to sort of, like, paint over the... the Absolutely. What, like, this could easily be Agricola, mm-hmm. right? And you're, like, building out your little farm. But sure. it's not. And it, yeah again like we're not experts you know so we should probably just like continue on with the palace (laughs) what we're doing but like i think like for 2017 yeah yeah like we're just in a different place now in the hobby like half decade later i I think i would be looking at it much more sideways if it came out today than i was then and that obviously that doesn't like change the actual thing but like that just says like we're coming further as sort of a, a hobby and as a whole world hopefully yeah yeah well put okay the next one the four spot in the palace yeah says give up one die showing value four and in return upgrade a building type to your choice and earn three money so basically you can treat this as a build action but you build on top of an old tile no no no, that's the five the the four is uh the uh, upgrade your technology oh i'm sorry thank you yeah yeah so four allows you to like score more points when you build a different building type of which there are four different ones yep. in the game um this i think this action. is a great action like yeah. i pretty much always want to take this if it's available yep. to me especially early on but even like late in the game because scoring three money alone is like not horrible it's fine so yeah, even good. if you're getting just like a single extra fame over the course of the game that's like a you know two and a half fame basically action and if you're doing it more than that it's like super win this is also the sort of action where if you don't do it a lot early on you can sort of be like oh i messed up right like if you're not eating your veggies getting the value of your buildings up a little bit you can be hung out to dry in the late game and sort of run out of steam Mm -hmm. okay i think like you definitely want to get at least like one of your buildings like all the way upgraded and this also has like a river space that seems super good where you get like one fame for like every space you've advanced on yeah the tech track like knowing that's coming later and potentially available to you is like pretty big time yep i really like those river spaces we're almost to where we can talk more okay. about the river too which is but then the final one is that master builder that i'd said before 
the five where you pay five and then you can build a new tile on top of an old tile. Mm -hmm. Super situational. I think like this is an interesting one in that like it gives you access to the better tiles late game. Um, It it's, I mean, I feel like it's an action you're probably taking like one or zero times in a game in most games um, where it's just sort of like a a late game play to like get you across the finish line uh, or get you close to the finish line. Um, And I think it's like pretty clear when to take it because it'll sort of either be like the best action for you or like the worst. Yeah. (laughs) Like So, yeah. And then the final one is the spot with six that lets you advance six locations up the river all at once when typically you could only advance one to three based on the value of a die that you put in there. Uh, so yeah, that's a really powerful action, but you burn your access to potentially really strong river spaces if you commit too fast all at once. Yes, yeah, you can never go back. So you can never go back. Classic yeah. river Euro game thing. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it, again, super strong, especially like for, there's a, a worker on the river that you when you pass, you get it. So like being able to use that uh, like a couple times early to just like, get a free worker early in the game seems really strong. Um, But yeah, the, the action spaces all along the river are super profitable. So foregoing a ton of early actions seems bad, especially because when you get to the end of the river, it's only like end game scoring stuff. Whereas like earlier on in the river, it's like extra dice, you know, one flip side thing can be that if you get to the end of the river, you can block. So if you're on a space in the river, you no one else can access that space they pass you and they don't even count that space in their movements so you can just camp on jake mentioned this space where you get to score a victory point for every spot you've moved up on the building track you could just get there and sit on it for the rest of the game and block it for the rest of the game for everyone and that's really powerful but you better have a plan to make up the lost opportunity cost of not taking those river spaces and i think that You mentioned the interaction of looking around the table. I think that's really good. And also the interaction on the river, you do feel. I think Mm -hmm. uh, it's fun and it's meaningful. And I think the river actually is also another part of this game that I really do enjoy and the decisions around it. And having that binary of, okay, over in the palace, I can move six. Those turns feel bombastic, I have to say. Um, So I love that about them. Yeah. And when you're taking the river space, normal, the normal access space, like you can only put a one through three there to move yeah. that value or less. And I, that's what I like doing with my ones. I just feel like yeah. early on in the game, like moving one space along the river, it's like everything you're getting there is generally like really good for you early in the game. So like trying to like scoop up as many as those as possible before it slowly starts shifting to like more situational end game stuff uh, can be like kind of a rocket booster for your your engine keep you on the log dude keep you up yeah keeps you upright and part of that too is like there's river spaces that give you three fame there's river spaces that let you take any action of the six actions we just so good yeah and there's multiple of those and they're yeah they're they're amazing there's later ones even if somebody's has the dice blocking it which yeah you can still so huge yeah yeah so do you have any i guess this is our river segment jake do you have any other thoughts on the river we kind of covered it i feel like yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel like unique or special here because it just is like like every Euro game has a river that you can go forward and not back on uh, that gives you points as you advance it, right? That's like a Alexander Pfister special uh, as in Boone Lake. Um, 
Parker Kaput Redney makes it a road, but you have yeah, but same thing. thing. Yep. Uh, so yeah, I mean, like, I don't know really what to say about this that hasn't already been said. It doesn't feel much different than like sort of a lot of those, but it's a good mechanism because like anytime you're advancing, especially more than a single space, like you have an inherent cost benefit analysis there, right? Like I, I want to advance, but, and like the faster you advance good, cause you can get access to that worker, but like there is a, a cost that you feel. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's a good mechanism. There's a reason why these show up in so many games. And I do think that that's one of the more interesting questions that the game throws at the player of when do you when do you want to get to that bridge to get that worker? We, we've talked about that a little bit early on. The answer is just like, I want to rush. But in the base game, you can only get you have three potential new workers that you can get on the board, but you can only get two of them. So that's, for me, an interesting question, because you could get one on the fame track, one on the money track and one on the bridge from the river. But in the base game, you can only ever get two. So I think that makes a little bit of a quandary of sort of where, where, which tracks am I going to move up? Is the river going to be one of them in the expanded mode? uh, That variant, you just sort of want to do all three. So it's less emphasized there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I feel like I found myself not always wanting to rush up the river, but doing it anyway, because it was oftentimes the easiest reliable path towards getting another worker, Mm -hmm. which felt too important to just not do when presented with the opportunity. Yeah, getting, I mean, like, I, I think I mentioned before, how it feels like all the different actions in this game feel like very close in terms of value. So like one huge way that you could like get an advantage over your opponents is to like get a worker around before they do yep. so that you get a whole extra action. Um, you know, that 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 alone can be like very difficult to overcome. Yeah. Um, even if like you have to do slightly less efficient route to that. Um, And I know that that's tricky and that's risky because if you try for that, you know, rush the river strategy, giving up a bunch of action, um, but there your opponent's able to, you know, get a worker a different way on the same round as you, then like now all of a sudden you might be the one like putting yourself in a hole. So there, you know, as I think like, this type of game that's like one of the good things about it right is like you have so many spaces so many turns so many activations like there's plenty of skill ceiling here right like being able to find the like the incremental value um you know it definitely feels like you know just like emotep um it's a game where like scores are always going to be close which is cool. Like, I like that. I like when there's like a close scoring band in a regular game, but the good players are like always going to be just squeaking it out. Yeah. Uh, and I love that in games. Definitely. I think that the comparison to Emotep is really apt too. And in terms of interaction, Emotep is inherently more interactive of a game because of that central mechanism of loading rocks into boats. And then anyone can send any boat to any location. But if you choose to load, you can't send it on the same turn, so it creates this impossible problem. And I think for me, that works really well in Emotep because of that core tension. And Rajas the Ganges tries to do that with the worker placement locations, right? The core tension is the opportunity cost of if I go here, I won't be able to go elsewhere. And I think that partially what I'm missing and why this game is great or good, but not amazing or great for me uh, in my taste is I, I want the tension to be a little bit higher uh, because it feels like there's 
generally something I can do that's almost just as good everywhere else, except for maybe in the final third of the game where blocking a certain location could be pretty devastating. Mm-hmm. I, I don't and, know. Yeah. And I think for me, I guess like my sort of like main criticism is a little different. Uh, you know, and again, it's a game I really enjoyed playing. We'll happily continue to play with people on our discord. It's been a huge hit there. People are really loving playing this. We should say yeah. um, is like, I, you know, and th- and this is something we've sort of talked a little bit, little bit about having a discussion based episode about sometime in the future. But I think like for me, it doesn't have enough variability mm. um, where, yeah. you know, it feels like and I don't just mean that in terms of like the different strategies to explore, you know, which is limited. That's not something like I care about as much for me. But like the variability I'm talking about is like in performance like i like the game to like give players the opportunity to have like a really good game or a really bad game um and i think like doesn't have that as much as a game like bruges that really elevates the genre for me um with like the potential for like lots of crises to come out now everybody's having like a really bad game and like how do we navigate that um or even like castles of burgundy which has like the potential like i could just roll all double ones all game long and like i'm having a bad game now and other people aren't so like it's not gonna have that same tight scoring band um but like it's fun to like get that different experience like how do i navigate this and do the best i can and it feels like raja just has a little too much like sameness like yeah you could not get the rules you want but like there's plenty of karma there's plenty of ways to mitigate it like almost too much maybe i feel like what i'm hearing also from you jake is within the system you want the game to ask you to play you you like the core system but you wish that it asks you to solve a different problem from game to game and any given play of rajas you're kind of solving the same types of problems it just asks you to solve them a little bit better than everyone at the table but Mm -hmm. every time you sit down to play you know the problem you're going to be solving And yeah, I think that that describes it sort of perfectly for me, where it feels really good. It's a masterfully made game, but at the end of each game, I feel like I played an unremarkable game of another game of Rajas. I I don't feel like I'll have a story to take away Mm -hmm. from the game and tell someone about, even if I really enjoyed my experience. And not all games have to, you know, have that narrative equity where after I play it, I can go tell someone about it. But I kind of love when they do. And I yeah. wish that there was a little bit of that here. Yeah. And that's what we're like. And I think that's sort of one thing we're looking for for a game that we think is like great. Right. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, you know, but other people have different opinions. Definitely. I've seen in our discord people being like, check out this like combo I pulled off. Like, yeah. look at like this, like insane turn I've had. So it does have like that sort of like jackpot moments that you're sort of like, okay, I have to like share this. Um, so like that is that is present there too so like i think credit where it's due i think a lot of times we do talk about like we want games that allow you to have like these jackpot moments where everything aligns and this does have that but that's sort of like the shareable memorable moments is like and then this final turn happened and i got 16 points it's not like a whole game narrative right yeah it's hard to tell somebody about like the game of rajas the ganges you just played Right. Yeah. You could just be like, I did the Rajas thing. It was yeah. good. I used it the dancer good. spot and I won. I never had to take any of the gain one die actions. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. yeah. So I was, man, I, dude, I, I walked all the way across the pool on a log. That's not what I say, though. I just say, I took the, the 
dice exchanging actions all game. I really maximized my swaps. It felt great. Jake beat me by 30. So uh, yeah, at the end of the day, I'm just on my log in the middle of the river. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you again to our Patreon supporters who uh, recommended us, yeah. you know, or didn't just recommend it. They demanded, they decreed that we would cover this game. So, of course, we listened uh, and it was really fun to learn it, play it and discuss it with you, Brendan. Uh, we, I know we have Barrage as the other one. That's going to take a little bit more time in the hopper uh, while I get around to learning and, and getting enough plays in but it is definitely going to be coming down the pipe i think we're up to like how many patreons do we have we have like i don't want to say it because i could just be like we have 18 off. which we is awesome 18 and if you'd like to have an impact on in the future you can check out our patreon at decisionspacepodcast.com slash patreon uh and potentially vote on the next game that we'll cover as a patron no you will be able to vote as i was gonna say game. like we need a new goal for if we have 20. Oh, okay. I want to spitball this right now. Tell me what you think about this idea. A what if goal. when we get to 20 Patreon backers, yeah. we'll both put out a YouTube video. Okay. With our face on it individually showing off the top five or 10 games in our personal physical collection. Yeah, let's do it. I'd love because to Because uh, people want to see our faces, you know, be able to tell us apart a little bit more. All right, there it but, is. But I want to say 25. Okay, we get to 25 Patreons. All right, deal. That's a very equitable A tour of our, of our top five games in our collection. Yeah, and we'll put it on YouTube with our faces on it. Face reveal. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah. Don't, okay. Come on, crew. Okay. That'll be great. Um, and, okay, well, yeah. Okay, well, then awesome. Jake, that was amazing. I love that idea. That should give you some incentive. Check it out. It's no pressure, but if you want to support the show, it's a great place to do that. You can learn more about the show and everything Decision Space on decisionspacepodcast.com. You can find Jake and myself on uh, the website formerly known as Falling Apart Twitter. Uh, Jake is at JakeFRYD, and I'm at, at BurnsideBH. And you can find the show at DecisionSPA. I think, well, Jake and I are probably going to have to have a conversation about the future of our Twitter, but for now, you can find us there. We're at Dis Decision SPA, not Real Decision SPA or Decision Space Official. Those yeah. are not us. <laughs> you could also find us on Board Game Geek. Uh, just Google Board Game Geek Decision Space and we'll be a blog that comes up. We're posting there every week and we love to hear feedback about our episodes there. We also always appreciate your thumbs. That also helps us uh, find more audience members and increase our reach as well. But until next week, we hope you enjoyed this episode crew we hope you really enjoyed this episode and uh maybe we'll cover memoir 44 next episode we'll see we also need to come up with something to say at the end of episodes it's yeah it's been well, far too long maybe we should just say like the interdecisional spaceship is now preparing to land all right we'll work on it all right bye everybody bye <laughs>